everyone. Welcome back to Teenager Therapy. I'm Gael, and welcome back to another episode of Hashtag Swiping Safely. In this episode, we're going to be talking to activists. We have a lot of really great people that are on this episode uh, with a lot of expertise behind activism, what it means to be an activist, how to be an activist. Um, and you'll get to hear from some really great people that will educate you more on a lot of issues such as, you know, being trans and trans transitioning and such. Uh, and trans athletes and then you'll also get to hear about what it is to be asexual and what asexuality is because it's one uh, sexuality that isn't really talked about much so have a really great episode for you guys before we begin you're going to get to hear about the UN youth envoy herself uh, but I'll let her introduce herself so here she is Yes, Gail, very happy to join you today. My name is Jatma Vikramanayaka. I'm originally from Sri Lanka, but I now work at the United Nations as the Secretary General's Envoy on Youth. And what does that mean? That means I advise and represent the world's top diplomat, the UN Secretary General, on issues that affect and are related to young people in our world today. Wow. How did you even begin to get a job like that? <laughs> this is certainly not a job that existed, you know, when I was in high school or even yeah. university because it's it's quite a new role. Uh, the role actually came into being because today our world is younger than it has ever been. We have half of our world's population today under the age of 30. Um, so the United Nations wanted to create a focal point or an office that can be an interface with those young people. And that can also be a bridge between young people and governments and the United Nations. So my office was established with that aim in mind. And I came into this role because in my home country, Sri Lanka, I had done quite a bit of work when it comes to youth mobilization and youth activism uh, on youth policy um, and in the National Youth Council of my country. So all of that work that I had done previously in my national uh, level and at the international level um, made me uh, be appointed for this role four years ago. Wow, that sounds really amazing. And as you know, this episode is all about activists and uh, the activism that young people can take and the kind of change they could bring about. So what is activism? You know, what? who can be an activist? Um, and just how do you even become one? Yeah, I think anyone can become an activist. I think sometimes there are uh, misconceptions and stereotypes in society that if you're an activist, um, you need to have a megaphone and a poster and be on the streets, you know, at a protest. But for an example, I started my activism by writing a poem to a newspaper. Uh, I was living in my home country, Sri Lanka, where there was a war happening. My country went through a 30-year-long armed conflict. And during that time, I was always thinking of different ways that we can bring peace to my country and to its people. So I wrote a poem about it, and that's how I started my activism. And I know so many other young people who choose different ways to express themselves and demand for their rights and freedoms. So you don't necessarily have to be out on the streets protesting. You can use art, you can use theater, you can write a letter to your president, to your prime minister, to your congressman or woman, uh, and really um, find different ways to express yourself, find ways that you are also comfortable in expressing yourself. And that way, anyone can become an activist. Yeah, that's really important. That's, that's really great to hear. And what is the importance of youth activism as a whole? I think 
today our world is facing so many problems because of the mistakes that were done by previous generations for an example we are living in a world that is so uncertain today particularly when it comes to the health of our planet if you look at the climate change and the rapid speed that our climate is changing we don't even know if young people and future generations will have a healthy planet to live in or not so i think it's so important that young people take this responsibility into our hands to reverse those mistakes that were done by previous generations and this means holding our elected political leaders to account but also living our lives and changing our lifestyles in a way that we can be an example to those who came before us i know that usually it's expected that adults will be role models for children but i think now the time has come that children and young people can be role models for adults to follow because we really need to change the way that our world is going right now yeah i agree and because of that do you think there's a lot more pressure on young people to to do something and get the word out about the issues that matter to them maybe because they feel like their elected officials aren't representing them in the way that they want to be it is and you know it's also not necessarily a good thing because if you are a child if you are a young person you should have an opportunity to enjoy your childhood enjoy your youthhood and to do things that normal children or young people would do but today the responsibility is on young people and children to go out into the streets and demand for action from political leaders to speak up about issues sometimes even risking their own safety and risking their own lives in different places like today we see in Myanmar in Colombia young people are the ones who are being targeted by the military and forces in their country just for speaking up and for demanding for democracy and accountability in their countries so um it is uh, not a good thing that we are putting this responsibility on young people but i think at the same time we see young people around the world really taking these matters into their hands and trying to bring about the change because we are fed up of seeing lack of progress we are fed up of seeing just speeches and not action and we really need our generation to take leadership and change the course of our world yeah well thank you so much for telling me that As you know, this episode is filled with a lot of great activists that are doing some very real work, uh specifically in the LGBTQ+ community, um and just advancing things like trans rights and queer rights and creating a more safe community and society as a whole. Uh so to finish off, is there anything else on your mind that you think is important for young people to know? Yeah, especially when we talk about activism, I think it's so important to keep our mental health in check, particularly for LGBTIQ young people because we know even before the covid pandemic uh, lgbtiq young people were more susceptible to mental health issues for, for an example suicide rates among lgbtq youth were higher than their peers um so we really even though i know that all of you are really excited about bringing about change and you take that responsibility upon yourselves please make sure that you take care of yourself too and that you keep your mental health at check because we need to first take care of ourselves in order to t- be able to take care fathers. Yeah, that's really really important. Something that I want to also emphasize is taking care of your mental health is perfectly normal. And if you need to take a break, that's also fine. You don't have to be an activist 24/7. You could take a break as well. Um exactly. well, thank you so much for joining me. This was really great and uh we're going to continue with our interview with the next activist. Um just want to thank you for your time and uh yeah. Thanks for having me, Gail.
Uh, coming up next, we have our first activist, and we have Skylar Baylor, who is incredible. I mean, he is an incredible athlete. He's a trans athlete, and he's been all over giving speeches about his experience. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Gael. I'm Skylar. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm a DEI a speaker, um, educator, life coach, and also author, uh, and then I guess Instagram educator these days as well. Yeah, thank you so much for being on. This is going to be, I'm really excited to talk to you because I think your story is so unique and also one that is uh, very rare to kind of come across. And it's not really something that, um, it's not something that many people have experienced. You're the first transgen transgender NCAAD1 men's athlete. Uh, what exactly does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, so um, the NCAA is college athletics. D1 is the top tier of NCAA athletics. Um, and I was the first trans man to compete as a man uh, in D1 athletics. Um, what does that mean? It means it was difficult. <laughs> um, it means that it was lonely in many ways. Um, it means it was empowering. It means I got to keep swimming, which is one of the most important things um, in, in, uh, in my life for as long as I can remember. Um, yeah, it means a lot of different things. So can you take us back to when you were in high school? Because after all, this is a podcast for teenagers. And I want to know who you were freshman year and what your life was like back then. All right. Freshman year. So I'm like 14, 15, right? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, I I'm, I was super weird, really quirky. I love the color green. I still like the color green. I wore a lot of green things. <laughs> Um, I was swimming all the time. That was sort of when I got, I got good at swimming. So I was training 20 plus hours a week. My life revolved around swimming. I think all the clothes I wore were swim clothes as well from different swim meets. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very driven, very, um, I want to say robotic actually at the time. And this kind of can, can, can segue into mental health as well. But I think I was so focused on swimming and on, on school and getting good grades and winning all those gold medals that um, I didn't have much of much of myself outside of those things. I think I became my accolades. So, um, mm. yeah, I would say that's sort of a summary of what I was like at the time, but I don't, I don't know where you want me to push so I can say more about anything. Yeah, I think I want, I would love to know, um, I guess sort of your experience being LGBTQ plus you in, in high school. Uh, I think right now there is a, there's definitely, uh, I think LGBTQ youth have a, a hard time in high school because it's a really interesting time because for many of us, we're um, starting to get to know ourselves, starting to get to know who we are, what we like, and that could be very lonely. Right. And uh, for, for many incoming freshmen, they're starting to find yourself. So what were you like? Did you know who you were? Um, you know, what did you know yeah. what kind of community you belong to? No, I did not. Uh, I, I had sort of inklings. I had actually, I had not come out uh, in ninth grade. I didn't know a lot about myself at the time, or rather I was afraid to come out. I think at the time mm -hmm. I, I'd figured out that I liked girls, but in ninth grade, I actually switched from one swim team to another swim team. It was a very small swim team that I started on. Then I switched to a bigger swim team. And I think that that, um, I don't know what the right word, sort of squelched all the self-discovery that I had been sort of leading up to until then, because the new team I felt was very homophobic, was very, uh, very sort of like, I don't know how else to describe, but they were the popular kids at 
at school. Do you know what I mean? Like I just felt very mm-hmm. not, not like I could be myself there. And um, the first questions a lot of the girls asked me at the new team was, oh my God, which guys do you think are cute? Like what guys do you want to date? And it was all about guys this. And I was like, I'm, I don't know, you know, because that wasn't something that I was interested in. Um, and I think that that really threw me for a loop at the time I was presenting as female. I was swimming on a women's team. I thought that I liked girls, but I, I knew that I, I, well, I felt like I shouldn't. So I was very ashamed, actually, of my sexuality at the time and knew nothing about my gender. So um, in that way, I think to, to what you're saying, absolutely. I was I had a very difficult time as an LGBTQ person, as, as an LGBTQ youth in high school because I felt like I had to not be myself most of the time. Um, it wasn't actually until junior year that I that I came out, so it took me for a while. Really? And so you said that you 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 knew, but you were too scared. Was why were you you? I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious why you were scared. But what kind of gave you the courage to come out? I got to a point the summer before my junior year in high school where I I think I had a dream of actually about telling one of my friends on the swim team and she had been supportive in my dream. And I, and I remember feeling this like immense relief and I'd been so anxious up until that point. And I thought, gosh, I really just, I got to do it. I got to tell people cause I got to be able to talk about this. Um, and I felt this, I felt a pressure. I was, I was very close with my parents growing up. So I actually felt a pressure to tell them first before I told my friends. So I, I did that. Um, and I just, I think I just like pulled it together one day and was like, I just have to tell somebody <laughs> I need to tell somebody. So I told my dad um, that I liked girls in like the five minutes it took to drive to swim practice that day. And I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and got out of the car and left. And um, uh, he, I, I remember he, I mean, my parents are very progressive and I think they were just like, uh, okay. And were confused as to why I had to make it like a big deal, quote unquote. If I could, they were like, you could just brought somebody home. It would have been fine. So I, it was very, you know, not a big deal at home. But mm. when I, when I went to swim practice, I still didn't tell anybody. So it, I actually didn't never came out as a, gay woman to my friends in swimming until way later um, when I came out as a trans man. And how did you figure out that you were a trans man and that you were transgender? I think that's a really complicated issue that is so difficult to come to terms with and just realize in yourself. So how were you able to do that and figure that out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult, but it's also not difficult in the sense that it's, it's putting words to a feeling. Like, I think a lot of trans people have always felt that the, the way we feel about ourselves is just how do we put words to it and how do we get the courage and the resources to then actually speak about it? Um, I, I think I, I just I, I want to sort of respond to that, that thought of like, it's always difficult because it is and it isn't. And I like to also remind us that sometimes there is just beauty and like, hey, I do know myself. And the difficulty is being able to claim it, not necessarily knowing it. Right. Um, I, I know that. That's not what you're saying, Gail. I just wanted to sort of expand on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, that space, that those resources, that courage came through therapy. So I went to a residential treatment center actually at the end of high school. I took a gap year for mental health specifically because I was struggling so much. And they said, you know what, I don't, they being my therapist said, I don't think that outpatient therapy, right? One hour of therapy a week is enough. You need more. Um, and so they recommended that they take a gap year. They said, I don't think you're actually going to be able to deal with any of this unless you go to residential treatment, right? Therapy, 12 hours a day, every day for months. Um, and so I did, I, I, you know, I was miserable. I was so depressed. I was so, um, struggling at the time. I was struggling with suicidality as well and eating disorder. And I just said, I, I, I got to try something different. This isn't working. 
And at that center, I was finally able to sort of unpack the things that were hurting me. And one of those things was gender. And I was able to realize, oh, I'm actually transgender. I met other trans people. That was life changing. I mean, being able to see myself in other people, you know, be able to finally reflect my my childhood, my boyhood, um, even though I was given girlhood. Uh, and and sort of how I walked through gender at the time, being able to see it in somebody else was so illuminating. That's so interesting that one of the biggest factors was just seeing other people like you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I don't think that's unique, right? I think visibility is, is saves lives every day because when mm. we see people like us, we say, oh, we can exist too. And when we Google, you know, yeah. example, for example, transgender swimmer or transgender person or transgender athlete specifically, I think being able to see other people like me would have been so helpful before I came out. And that, that's why I choose to do the work that I do now, because now you, you can Google transgender swimmer and transgender athlete and have somebody pop up. I pop up for the transgender swimmer one. And um, it's not about me popping up, right? It's about somebody being there. Because when I was Googling people, nobody, nobody came up. And I concluded that that meant I couldn't exist. So even when I figured out that I was trans, I still didn't have the right visibility. And now there is that visibility. And, and when, I, when a kid is Googling, transgender swimmer or transgender athlete, they're Googling, do I belong in this world? Right. And I want my, my picture that comes up on that search return to be a resounding. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Trans kids belong here and belong in sports too. That's, that's really inspiring. I'm amazed that you were able to go through such a hard period, especially being so young and overcome that and not just overcome it, but really like thrive afterwards. And, and you became a, a top athlete as a, as a swimmer. What was that experience like when, when you kind of came out of it? Did, did your performance even increase and get better uh, as soon as you kind of conquered your mental health? Yeah, I mean, I so I did get faster in college, but I will add that I was not nearly as competitive as I was competing as a woman. Um, I, I was probably the top 1% before and I was, I was seated to be very much the top, the top of the, of the, of the NCAA swimmers for the women's side. But as the men's side, I ended up being the top, like 14%, top 15%, uh, which is not top 1%, but it's not, it's not terrible. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that, um, it was a different, a different game in many ways. And I was definitely starting from a disadvantage of just barely even beginning my transition when I started college. So physiologically speaking, I was quite behind, but, um, but there was so much glory in just being able to be myself. And I was very proud that I ended up not, not being terrible, right. Being pretty decent, yeah. top 15%, yeah. but, um, but it was different. Right. Um, and I performed way better than I had ever done before. And beating myself was really the, the number one goal. That's really, that's really good to hear. I think there's, it's interesting because there's obviously a big discussion about trans athletes and, you know, where they kind of belong on, on, on which team they belong in. Did you ever kind of maybe doubt that you should go on the women's team or have you always been sure that, no, I belong in the man's team, in the men's team, and I'll compete there even if it's at a disadvantage? Yeah, so... The summary is that I think that trans athletes should compete for the, the, the team that they feel most comfortable with. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's going to mean that a trans man competes for a women's team. And sometimes it's going to mean that they, they compete for a men's team like I did. Um, the, the rules at the NCAA level are based on hormones. So if you take hormones as a trans man like me, then you have to compete as male. Um, if you're assigned male at birth, then you must compete as male unless you can prove that you've been on one documented year of hormone suppressants, right? So your hormones go down to an average female level, then you can compete as a female. That's, that's how the rules yeah. work. Um, for me, I think that 
I, and you said, so you echoed the word disadvantage. And I think that, so the disadvantage for me is not that I'm trans, it's that I started puberty at, at year 19, as opposed to at year 14, right? Most most boys start going through puberty, their bodies start releasing testosterone around the ages of like 12, 13, 14. And so by the time they get to college at 18 years old, they've been quote on testosterone for six or seven years. Whereas for me, I was starting testosterone at 19 years old and I started college three months after I started testosterone. So the disadvantage, and I like to be really clear about this, the disadvantage for me was the timing and not that I'm transgender, if that makes sense. Um, and the reason yeah. I'm really being, being yeah. clear about this is trans men can absolutely compete against and beat cis men. Um, and we are capable of doing that. We don't have to be sort of, sort of at a disadvantage. I think that, that that statement, again, is misleading if we don't talk about it in its specificity. Um, mm -hmm. My disadvantage was timing. Had I gotten testosterone earlier, had I yeah. more time before I started competing on the men's team, I think I would have been not at a disadvantage. Um, but, but, uh, but, you know, I had a bit of catching up to do the first and second year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of these issues really come down to being specific about what we're talking about because the, the wrong language and the wrong wording could really get, I, I don't know, kind of lose the message as you spread over a large uh, audience and stuff. So as a trans activist, what kind of issues are you advocating for and what's the change that you're trying to make? Right now, we're focused on fighting these anti-transgender bills. So right now, there's over 140 anti-trans bills passing around the country in various state legislatures, despite the fact that actually the federal government, so Biden's administration, has said clearly that trans people belong, um, which is wonderful. But the problem is this, gov this, this country is governed by state governments as well. So 144, right, at the last time I checked, but uh, over 140, right, anti-trans bills. Mm -hmm. Most of them are focused on excluding trans people from sports or um, removing healthcare, gender-affirming healthcare for kids. Um, so what do kids do? They really like play sports and go to the doctor and eat food. They don't do a whole lot other than the things that we're attacking, that currently the, the governments are attacking them for. So this is a massive attack on trans youth, right? Um, and the thing is, they're focused on them mostly for, for, for really unfounded reasons, for, for things that are not actual facts. Every single major medical, psychiatric, and psychological association opposes the healthcare bans for trans youth. Every single major medical and psychological and psychiatric association affirms that the best way to respond to a transgender kid is to affirm their gender identity and to allow them transitional resources if they want them. Right. But the bills are being like, well, no, we shouldn't mm -hmm. because whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. There's a lot of things that people try to purport there, but mostly it's, oh, kids are not, quote, old enough to make these decisions. That's false. Kids are absolutely old enough to know their gender identity. They can actually know it as soon as they can talk around three to five years old. And that's according to me many major medical associations. Right. But the lawmakers are saying, no, we know better than doctors about healthcare, which is false. Lawmakers do not know better about healthcare um, than, than doctors do. So that's sort of that one. And, and the other side is the sports one, which we could dive deeply into if you'd like. But um, in summary, they mostly want to exclude trans women from sports, specifically from women's sports. And a lot of that argument is based on fairness and this idea, oh, well, that's not fair because these, these women were, quote, born men or they're, quote, biologically male. And the first thing I always say is if we're going to talk about this, you're going to you're going to not be transphobic as you talk about it. So trans women are women. Trans girls are girls. They are not biological males. They are not born men. These are trans women. These are women. Right. That's the first thing. And then beyond that, if you want to talk about biology or anatomy, OK, let's talk about that. But the reality is we're starting from the fact that they are women. And the next thing is then they'll go about this fairness thing and biology, yada, 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 yada. And the reality is these bills are talking about children. 
And most children don't have biological differences to speak of because they haven't gone through puberty, right? And then people will be like, well, will the Olympics this and, you know, national level this and elite sports this. These are not about elite sports because at all levels of elite sports, there are already regulations, right? I talked about the NCAA. The NCAA already has regulations for transgender athletes to compete, and they do have to have hormone regulations. Same with the the Olympics, the IOC, the Paralympics, same with the International Swimming Committee. Like All of these major um, associations of sports require you to have hormonal regulations at elite levels. But if you're not elite, it doesn't matter. And if you're a child, right, who's just kicking around a ball with their friends because they're eight years old, it really doesn't matter because there are no biological differences to speak of before the age of 13-ish, right, Tanner stage two of puberty, which is a stage two of puberty Mm -hmm. when when actual differences occur. So there's a lot there we can unpack it. There's a lot of racism actually involved, misogyny, sexism, and it's not just transphobia, but I don't know how much you want me to dive into Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting issue and it's something that I'm still kind of trying to figure out because I definitely, I think the one issue that a lot of young people are confused about that's a little unclear to them uh, that they have a hard time understanding is just the the concept of, um, it is about fairness and for, for the young people that I've talked to, their main concern is, well, aren't they biologically a male? So there's like a disadvantage or an advantage. So I'm curious to hear why that isn't true and why that's not a a valid argument or or concern to really be worried about. Yeah. So there's a couple of reasons. The first thing is let's, when we talk about biologically male, let's, let's, let's unpack that for a second. Cause Mm -hmm. the reality is that although we're taught usually in whatever eighth grade biology, that the world is comprised of people who are biologically male and biologically female, that's biologically false. Biology is not ever that simple, right? Biology and biological sex is actually a spectrum too. And there's not one way to define biological sex. A lot of people will think, okay, penis equals man and vagina equals woman. That's simple. That's biology, right? Or chromosomes, X, X, and X, Y. The reality is there's actually five main components of biological sex, which includes chromosomes, hormones, hormone expression, which is separate from the hormone, um, internal genitalia and external genitalia. And these don't always develop in these neat little buckets of classically male and classically female. About 2% of the time they don't. And those folks are called intersex. Intersex means between sex. And the important thing about, well, many important things about people who are intersex, but one important thing to recognize is 2% is not insignificant. 2% is actually a massive amount of the population. 2% of the world population is Russian. 2% 2% of the world population has red hair, mm-hmm. 2% of the world population is green-eyed. So nobody is going around saying that red-haired people don't exist or that Russians don't exist or that people with green eyes don't exist. Actually, those are pretty normal things to see around the world. And actually, Russia is considered one of the biggest countries in the world, right? So in the same way that those people are significant and exist, so too do intersex people and far more common than we think. So that's the first step is this idea of like, oh, they're biologically male. You don't know what their biology looks like. You don't know what's going on in their body. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything actually about their bodies except for the fact that they may, may have been assigned male at birth, right? That's all you know. Um, okay, so the next thing is that if you want to stick on the specifics of biology, you want to talk about biology, you can say that. People with higher levels of testosterone, people with penises, people with testicles, right? We can actually talk about the biology so that we don't have to gender people. The reality is that having a penis has no impact on sports, <laughs> It does not make you better at a sport. In mm-hmm. fact, it might even make you worse at a sport to some degree because you have more to protect. Um, but for the most part, and I've heard this argument before where people are like, well, but you know, they have the penises and whatever. It doesn't make you better at a sport, which leads me to the main part of this issue about the idea of like somebody being biologically male being an advantage. It's actually very sexist. It says boys are automatically better at sports. 
It says people who are assigned male at birth are automatically better at sports. Whereas this is not the case. Somebody who's just, let's say, you know, assigned male at birth waltzes into a sports field, let's say swimming, and they've never swum before. They are not automatically going to be better than Missy Franklin, one of the best female swimmers in the world, or Katie Ledecky. They're not just going to be better because they were assigned male at birth. They're going to have to train. <laughs> and this is, again, a very sexist, misogynist mm-hmm. belief that, that people who are assigned male at birth, what the world considers men, are automatically better at sports. They're not. And again, before the age of 13, and puberty, there are no biological differences anyways. Mm-hmm. That- That's really interesting. I know another thing that I've seen is uh, when, when, when we're talking about professional athletes is that that males, I guess, have a, a higher muscle density and such. But does that difference go away when you put when you're put on testosterone for a certain amount of time? Yeah, so let's let's back up for a second. You just said professional sports. We're not talking about professional sports when we talk about any of these bills. Right. So mm. none of the bills in the in the country are applying to professional sports. The bills are mm-hmm. about children who are just playing on their local teams, in their high school teams. Um, they're not really, they're about debating about children. children. We're talking about kids. Yeah. Because all the wow. other levels, so wow. when you say professional sports, they have rules already there. And that's different. And the state legislatures, I don't think, actually have impacts on those sports. We're talking most of the bills, and maybe I've been read every single one of them, but most of the bills are talking about kids. We're not talking about professional athletes. And so the argument that you just brought to me is the exact issue that happens when we talk about these in public and with people. People, well, what about that, 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 you know, that um, MMA fighter? They'll go to that MMA fight, Fallon Fox, mm-hmm. every single time. She's not a child. <laughs> We're not talking about children. Um, and by the way, the argument about her is also unfounded. People break things all the time in MMA fighting, whether or not they're assigned to male at birth. There are plenty of, of bad accidents in MMA fighting. So that one we can throw out as well. But that aside, even if you did want to bring validity to that argument, that's a professional athlete. This is not professional athletes. We're not talking about professional sports because the government doesn't have the ability to regulate that. They are not a professional sports body, right? They're regulating what? Mm-hmm. Government activities, which includes school. Um, so I, I think it's really important. That's so interesting. Sorry, I, I wanted to say that yeah. the one thing about yeah. that, that, that to answer your question directly, though, when you go on testosterone suppressants, so it's not that you're taking testosterone. If you're assigned male at birth and you've been through testosterone-driven puberty, that means testosterone has been released in your body. Um, then you go on testosterone suppressants. It stops the testosterone from being coursed in, you know, through your veins, and they actually give you estrogen instead, and that lowers your testosterone levels like you're asking. Interesting. That is so interesting that these bills are about children. And it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around that the the government so worried about kids playing sports just for fun. We're just talking about kids playing sports. And we're talking about kids playing sports who have, you know, plenty of legislators have had um, trans kids allowed in sports for decades. And no trans girl domination has occurred, right? No trans woman has actually even ever been in the Olympics and they've been allowed in the past two Olympics. So if anything, trans people are vastly underrepresented in the Olympics. We are not mm-hmm. winning anything in the ways that the people are fear-mongering us about. Because the whole argument is this unfairness thing, right? Which immediately begs like, yeah. okay, so they're going to win everything. We're not. There have been like two cases, maybe three of trans women winning in sports right now. Um, and that is vastly underrepresented even those three cases, if it's three, right? You could actually rule multiple by like by 100. It's 300. It's still way underrepresented, yeah. right? 
right? So um, none of the fear yeah. is based in fact, they're all based in what? Fear and bigotry, racism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, etc. Yeah, I think this really does come down to a couple of fundamental issues. Um, but hopefully in the next couple of years, we start to see more representation. And, you know, it's happening slowly, but at least it is advancing. And uh, it's thanks to people like you that make that possible, that people are willing to speak out. So thank you for, for doing that work. And apart from this, I want to ask about something that's the subject of this campaign, because we're focusing on the exploitation of LGBTQ plus youth in online communities and also how we can facilitate safer communities. Um, and the issue that we're really focusing on is the fact that LGBTQ youth don't have the same spaces as a heterosexual youth do to explore their sexuality, their romantic interests, their friendships, and find people like them. Is that something you think, is that something you've experienced before when you were younger? Did you think about dating and, and what was your mentality at the time? I mean, absolutely. I've experienced that kind of lack of resource and community. I, I, I did have a, a GSA at my school, and so I was able to connect with other people who are from the LGBTQ plus community. But I think that just because the way the world works, and specifically for me in swimming, I didn't have those resources at sport. And I think that was a really big detriment to me. So I think it's absolutely crucial that we find community. And that's something that I try to do online as well as provide more community for folks as, um, as I'm able so that they can connect with each other who are other, you know, other trans people, other queer people, other LGBTQ folks. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that's a pretty, a, a pretty large issue within our community. Um, but I think social media is making it better in many ways. And then there's also always like hard edges of social media too, because how can you control it? The, the trolls, the, you know, the, the ignoramuses and the people who, who make hate comments. So I think it's kind of a double-edged sword in that way. Yeah. Did you have, have you experienced a lot of toxicity on social media or do you think it's been overall a positive impact on your life? I mean, I have, I, yes, absolutely. There's been tons of, of toxicity on, on, on the yeah. online, wherever, whether that be in comments on news articles, DMs, tweets, you know, comments on my Instagram, especially ones that, that get a lot of attention or engagement. Um, and it's an overall positive experience. So I think both are true, right? Um, and one of the things I've mm -hmm. learned over the years, and I think I learned this actually very early on in my account, is that their opinions don't mean anything to me. Their opinions reflect them. Right? Their opinions are, um, their comments, their hate, their DMs, whatever, are all reflections of who they are. I got a message recently. Um, it was after I had posted something about gun control and Black Lives Matter uh, and just sort of the, the the theme of white supremacy in, in gun control, right, or the lack thereof. Um, and somebody messaged me and was like, I hope somebody shoots you and then the cop doesn't shoot them and that like they, that you die. Well, it was like really intense. Mm -hmm. And I read it and I, I had this like overwhelming feeling of sadness for this person because I was like, wow, they must really be miserable or upset or something. They had a really bad day to message me something like that. Like what, what cruelty, you know, what inspires that kind of cruelty? And it's usually cruelty to oneself or experiencing cruelty. And so I think, and that's been sort of a, a practice that I've learned is to understand where people are coming from. It doesn't mean that it's okay. I'm going to be really clear. Like, it doesn't mean I was like, oh, let me just give this person no. a nice hug. No, I deleted the message and I blocked the person um, because I'm, I don't have space for that. And that's not mine to hold. And I, I, I'm going to protect myself first, but I don't get hurt by the messages anymore. I, I don't really feel like I internalize any of them because it's such an expression of them and not a reflection of me, right? Expression of them not a reflection of me. And yeah. I think it's a really important distinction that I've learned. 
Yeah, definitely. Is there what's next for you? I guess is my question. Um, do you have anything coming up? I have a lot of random projects. Um, so Pride Month is coming up, right? So the, I don't know when exactly yeah. this is going to air, but I'm assuming probably in the next couple of weeks or maybe during Pride. So I, I'm really excited for Pride. I've done, uh, I've got a bunch of content planned and I'm, I'm just excited for sort of the, the heightened visibility that always comes with it and hoping that drives forward action as well that's long lasting. So that's, that's the first thing that's coming up. I've got a couple of cool other things in the works, but the biggest thing that's coming up is the publishing of my book. So I wrote a book, uh, it's, it's called Obi is Man Enough, and it's about a 13-year-old Korean-American swimmer who's also transgender, and it's about his life and his story as he, as he navigates swimming. Um, and transness is, a, is, a, is a, an important part of his story, but it's not the only thing. And that was my goal was to sort of give us a little bit more of a human story where we're more than just trans people, you know, I think a lot of stories focus on coming out and the trauma that comes with being trans. And I, I think those are valuable to a degree, but I want more. I want more humanity, right? So I wrote that story mm -hmm. for all the kids um, who are trans and who are just people too, right? Um, and for everybody else to learn about, about trans kids. So it's called Obi is Man Enough and it's out for pre-order now and it will be available this fall in, in, in September. Um, so that's sort of my next, my next big project that's coming out. It's amazing. Well, uh, hopefully everyone listening can pre-order it. Sounds like a really cool book. And uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at, at Pink Manta Ray. So pink like the color, Manta Ray like the animal. All my handles are that except for Twitter, which is SB underscore Pink Manta Ray. And my website is also rich with resources and ways to connect with me. I also offer life coaching. I have support groups for trans and LGBTQ plus people, uh, many other resources online. So my website is pinkmantaray.com and you can find all of that there. Well, thank you so much, Skylar, for joining us and educating us on trans issues. It's been such a valuable conversation, and I think uh, your story alone is already incredibly valuable. So thank you again for the work you're doing, and I uh, hope everything goes well for you. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So that was Skylar. Uh, he is incredible. Uh, his journey is incredible and so inspiring, and he really, really had a really great conversation with him, um, learned so much about the trans community and the issues that are actually affecting them. Uh, it turns out there's a lot that I didn't know about it. So really great to hear, super informative. Coming up next, we have an asexual activist uh, and she is an advocate for asexuality awareness and what it means to be asexual. So here she is. Uh, hi, I'm Caroline. I'm from Perth, Western Australia. Um, I'm a 26-year-old uh, asexual activist um, and in like the film and TV industry working to get more um, representation for the community. So you're an asexual advocate. What exactly does it mean to be asexual for uh, our listeners that aren't aware of that? Um, asexuality, if you're unaware, um, is little to no sexual attraction. Um, it's a massive spectrum of um, sexual attraction and where you kind of fit. Um, it's very underrepresented um, in the community um, and just everywhere. Um, and yeah, we're just trying to help get it, get more awareness about out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So asexuality means little to no sexual attraction. So that just means like there's no interest 
I, I guess, first off, we have to be clear that sexual attraction and romantic attraction are two very different things, right? Exactly, yes. Um, so you can be in a relationship with someone, but you aren't sexually attracted to them. Um, and there are um, many different factors because it's a spectrum. So you can be sex positive, you can enjoy sex, but you just don't feel that attraction. Um, you can be demisexual, which basically means you only feel sexual attraction when you feel comfortable and safe or intimate with someone. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of different um, different descriptions for people um, and how they fit in the spectrum. Mm, yeah, so I really want to dive kind of like into all of those because I think what's something that's really helpful is, um, well, this campaign obviously is about queer dating generally and like why queer youth don't have the opportunity to date people. But I also want to take a moment to kind of acknowledge that not everyone wants to date, right? Not everyone wants a romantic partner and not everyone wants a sexual partner. And I think that's something that's often just thought of as the norm and kind of to break away from that is seen a, it's pretty unorthodox and it's just not something that's very common. And so I want to take a moment to just really dive into what all of this means and what asexuality is, how you can discover your asexual and just the different many, the many different ways that it kind of transpires across the spectrum. So I guess to start off, what exactly does it mean to be romantically attracted to someone, but not sexually? Does that mean you can't find them attractive? You're just in love with the, I guess, their personality, but you don't have any, I guess, sense that they are an attractive person? Um, so with sexual attraction, it's more or less like you see someone and you want to have sex with them. Um you can be like physically attracted to someone or aesthetically attracted to someone, but with asexuality, it's the physical side. You you don't want to have sex with them or you don't feel that urge. Um, a lot of people would refer it to being horny or like, yeah. Um, and so you just don't feel that or that's just not a presence in your life. Um, a lot of people refer to it as being sexually frustrated and, um, kind of just on a warpath, if that makes sense. Um, but some people just don't feel that. Mm. So they don't feel any sort of, I guess, wanting to have sex with someone. But does that also mean that it's not something that's possible for them? Like they're not able to physically bring themselves to having sex? Um, there are some people who are sex repulsed. So the, the sheer idea of sex physically repulses them and they feel really uncomfortable um but on the other side there are people who are sex positive so um they enjoy sex and everything that comes with it but they just don't feel that initial attraction um that would lead them to that path um and it's just it it, it is really hard to kind of figure out where you sit on the spectrum it took me a very long time um a lot of that came from my own trauma um, because I d identify as demisexual. It came from a sexual trauma that I only feel sexual attraction to someone when I feel comfortable and safe around them. And it's like my body, it's like its own defense mechanism. I don't feel that sexual attraction mm -hmm. until I feel mm -hmm. physically comfortable and safe in someone's presence. Interesting. Yeah, the idea of being 
I guess, sex, repulsed by sex, and also just being able to have it, but maybe not necessarily seek it. Um, So I think what is confusing for a lot of people about asexuality is they just can't fathom the fact that you just don't find anyone attractive. So is is there a form on the spectrum where you truly don't find, like, people attractive? Like, there's no form of aesthetic attractiveness or romantic or sexual attractiveness. It's purely just their mind and their personality. Yeah, that would kind of fall under um, uh, aromantic, which is basically you don't want to have any kind of relationship with them, like, romantically. You just kind of want to be in their presence. Um, And especially for queer youth, that would be a queer platonic relationship where you just want to be friends with them for life and be constantly in their presence and form that kind of bond. Um, And there's literally almost zero um, representation in film and TV. Um, So that normalcy is kind of like we're derived of it. People don't understand that it's completely normal because they don't see themselves in a character on their favourite TV show or film. Um, and so it's kind of like it's my sole purpose to kind of just bring that normalcy and bring that, like, understanding that you're not alone. There's so many people that feel the way you do. And so I guess to talk about that a little bit more, I mean, a romanticism, or what's it called? Um, so, yeah, it's aromanticism. Um, it's basically you just want to hang out with them. <laughs> I mm. mean, you can be aromantic um, and also have that sexual attraction because it's kind of like two different spectrums. Um, with aromantic, you kind of just... It's like... A relationship just without the romance like you don't want to hold hands with them you don't want to kiss them you just want to hang out and form a really intimate bond like emotionally mm-hmm. so is that something that i guess would be considered a relationship because i guess there's a lot of different definitions of what a relationship is and what it means to be in one and for a lot of people it's you know having sex having going like kissing one another and just engaging in those activities so if you're let's say aromantic, um, is there, I guess, a sort of way that you can enjoy having that relationship, but just not, I guess this is something, okay, let me me rephrase that. For a lot of aromantics, are they getting in relationships or is it more of a, they stay away from it, but they're still very close to it, but there's just never that definition of calling it a relationship? You can be in an aromantic relationship. It's just um, because with, like, every every single like couple like is a relationship. You just have different boundaries and parameters that you set with with each other. Um, and so it is really tough for aromantic people because they feel so isolated. Um, because they don't see see what they feel very often in other in relationships around them, um, and so there are there is so much like asexual phobia, 
especially in the queer community as well. Um, I know a lot of friends of mine, um, they're queer and they're aromantic or asexual, but they're constantly told that, like, oh, um, you're not gay because you don't like sex. Or, like, you can't be a lesbian because you don't want to go down on someone. And it's like, it's it's this kind of like, oh, you're just too, you're just too afraid or you're inexperienced or, and it's a lot of, like, putting people down and pigeonholing them um, into something that fits their agenda. I don't know. That's just my take mm-hmm. on it, I think. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I do definitely see a lot of that, which is invalidating someone's sexuality and what they identify as simply because they don't want to engage in certain parts that are considered a norm to be that sexuality, right? Like if you're gay, uh, you're expected to do certain things. But then I guess that also kind of raises the question of what does it truly mean to be gay, lesbian, pansexual, asexual, transgender? Let's say you're asexual how far does the spectrum go, right? Is it, can you be, you know, aromantic, but still want to have like sex and be completely, you know, participative in that? Is that a form of the spectrum? And is there a point where, I guess what I'm asking is, where are the boundaries between, you know, your asexual, do you have to meet certain criteria? Well, I think a lot of it is, you kind of build your own label, like, there are so many labels in the sexual community that help people, but like you're the only one that can set the boundaries of how you feel and how you want to be perceived. And so you don't always have to be like pigeonholed into a label like asexual or aromantic because like only you can know what you're comfortable with. Um, And I think a lot of people they go for years trying to figure out like their identity or who they are and sometimes it kind of slips in between the cracks and it's a little bit grey um, and so a lot of people find it really hard and put a lot of pressure on themselves to find that perfect label that fits them perfectly but sometimes it's not that easy. Um, there is a lot of kind of notches in the asexual spectrum and the aromantic spectrum and so even for me I'm still learning um everything it's very vast it's very big and so like it just takes a bit of a google and a bit of a kind of research and trust me it makes it so much easier I mean like the way I found out that I was asexual was that I got drunk at three in the morning and and Googled why sex bad. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we're all kind of just finding our footing and there's no pressure to kind of get it perfect the first round. Yeah, I think for a lot of queer youth, what's most helpful for them when discovering who they are is kind of just no labels, right? Like you don't need to label yourself. Just experience as asexual, exactly. Just experience it. Like whether you're aromantic or asexual, you don't need a label that just yet. Because when you're young, it's still very confusing for a lot of us, because you're figuring out who you actually are, and you change so much so quickly that it gets very confusing. And I think um, 
labels can be good and i think they're mostly useful when you're older and you kind of know what you like and what you don't like and then you're able to put a label on it instead of trying to look at the labels and see which one you fit into um when you're young so i think asexuality is a a very underrepresented community and a lot of people don't know so what would you say is your best advice to someone that's like feels very isolated because they're like you know what i've never really felt the need for a boyfriend or a girlfriend or i've never felt the need to have sex or be attracted to someone how how can you do you have any advice for someone that is in that hole honestly um the asexual community is so welcoming and if you are unsure it only takes like a couple minutes on Instagram where you can find like so many really helpful accounts um, that post memes and updates and um, different labels and different kind of like um, experiences. And it's like you can kind of see yourself in those imagery and that kind of like all of the analysis that has already been done for you. Um I've been talking recently with a producer and she's coming out with a film called um, Dear Luke, Love Me, um, which is groundbreaking because we have no asexual representation. And um, the way that she found out she was asexual was because she gave her script to her friend, to her asexual friend, and her asexual friend says, "Um, this is a beautiful queer platonic relationship like storyline like are you asexual and she's like what's that (laughs) (laughs) like it it happens like life happens when you're busy making other plans like it it just comes together so beautifully that's really interesting and that's really that's really nice to hear and i think it's something that a lot of queer youth need need to hear is that things just kind of happen and it kind of relates to the message of this campaign which it's all about, you know, why are teenagers resorting to hookup apps to find someone like them and to uh, meet up with people like them? And it's a lot, of, a lot of the times it's because they just simply are desperate for connection and love. And they're desperate for, I guess, almost also they're desperate to figure themselves out. Um, they're desperate to kind of feel normal and do what exactly their friends are telling them to do or do what their friends are doing and so you look up apps like grinder and stuff it's so mm-hmm. exploitative like there's yeah. so many like flaws in the system where queer youth are getting preyed on and i'm just it it makes me really like upset like it's just oh yeah no there there definitely is so much of that because there's like you said, they're desperate to feel normal. And that's a big reason why grooming is such a big issue is because a lot of queer youth are looking to these older men who are secure in their sexuality, they're secure in their image, and they're looking to them almost for guidance, even if it's very subconscious at the end of the day. It's comforting to see that. And I think that's why it's such an important scene film. You want to be reassured that, like, what you're feeling and what you're going through is, like there's another person that has lived through that already and they can teach you. But those people are then taking that innocent child, an innocent teenager, and going, okay, I can manipulate them into making 
into feeling like what I'm going to be providing them and what I'm going to be influencing is normal. And so that Mm -hmm. grooming aspect comes into play like super massively and so many queer youth are just getting exploited. Yeah, I think it's also related to film, right? You see, if you see characters like you, you see, uh, you know, movies where your story is represented, you, you feel that it's normal, you feel that you belong. And I, this really ties into the queer community because since there's such a lack of that, a lot of people don't see themselves on there. So they look for people that are that, but in real life, and it often leads to a lot of grooming. So um, again, I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing in film because I think that's such an important thing, especially for asexual and aromantic people. Yeah, thank you. And it's, I think with TV and film, like there's almost no like real characters that you can kind of draw to like I got really excited a couple years ago because I saw that um uh Cole Sprouse from Riverdale was campaigning for his character to be asexual which is um canon in the comics and Mm -hmm. um they just completely disregarded it and he the couple he was in in the show was the most sexualized couple and it was like a slap in the face to all the people who were campaigning for that representation. And it's like... Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it plays into the fact that these grown adults are sexually exploiting teenagers in film. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's there's so many film directors that, like, they should not be betraying, like, sexuality in teenagers. Mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. essentially grooming like yeah, yeah. they're trying to yeah. make children and teenagers feel like that is normal and that is the way it should be and so yeah mm-hmm. that grinds my yeah. ears <laughs> no, no I bet it must because I actually had no clue that like he really pushed for that and it was just rubbed aside and not just rubbed aside but kind of really just like well now we're going to make that Complete couple of most sexualized person um so it's it's disappointing that i think a lot of this the reason there's such little representation is because the majority of people are straight cis male females right and so they're appealing to what drives the more the most revenue and stuff so it's sad for communities like ours which are a lot smaller um but clearly it's it's clear that we're passionate about this Mm -hmm. and when there is a character like that we're quick to support it so Hopefully in the next couple of years, we see more asexual representation, more aromantic representation, and simply just more queer representation in general. Yeah, exactly. And um, if you didn't pick it up on, on it before, definitely check out Dear Luke, Love Me. Um, it's going to be an amazing, groundbreaking film. And yeah, I, I can't wait. For sure. That's going to be such a good watch. And uh It'll be a great alternative to all these other queer movies that are sometimes very exploitive. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so thank you, Caroline, for joining me. Uh, where can people find you? Um, so on Instagram, um, I'm click for Caroline, um, where all my asexual um, activism is, and we've also got Just Aces Official, which is our asexual hub that we're going to hopefully one day turn into a TV series. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me. (laughs) 
Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for joining me and talking to me. It was great learning all about the asexual community, and I wish the best for you, and hopefully you keep it up. You too, and congratulations on graduating. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So that concludes this episode. Uh, had some really great conversations. Learned so much. Let me know what you learned. What did you take out of it? And do you identify as asexual? Um, are you trans? Are you transitioning? Let me know. I would love to know. Um, so that's it for this episode of Swiping Safely. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you took something out of it. Make sure you subscribe, like, do that whole thing. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.